morning. Shall we begin with prayer? Oh Lord, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So would you now open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know if you have ever been scuba diving before. I've not yet had that particular distinction, though I have been snorkeling and I've seen the abyss, so I'm pretty much there. It's been said of Christians that we can be like a person who puts on all of our scuba diving gear, wetsuit, flippers, mask, tank, gauges, hoses, all the fiddly bits. We get ourselves all kitted out and for what? All just to pull the drain from the bathtub. Has that ever felt like the Christian life for you? Maybe like me, you grew up in the church or maybe like many of my friends, you came to know Jesus years ago and perhaps you've gotten accustomed to getting up in the mornings and to squeezing on your neoprene and slapping on those goofy goggles and heading out into the world dressed for action. But do you find after donning all that kit, and no doubt it's very impressive, but do you find that you arrive at the end of the day feeling, ah, do you know what? It's all been a waste of energy really because I could have pulled the plug just as easily in my pajamas. Is that the way you feel about your Christian life? That it's a big parade, a hollow facade, a display without power or substance? Is it as if day by day you deck yourself out in a grand array of gear, but your life in Christ is about as challenging and about as rewarding as pulling the drain from the tub? I hope no one will mishear me. The Christian life is to be lived out most of all in the little and the mundane things of life. So when I brush my teeth or when I make my bed, I am living out my life in Christ every bit as much as when I share the gospel with a neighbor or attend a small group Bible study or whatever. But I'm not asking you whether you live out your Christian life in small things. I'm asking whether your Christian life is small. And that's a very different question. It's a question not of quantity, how much do I have? It's a question rather of authenticity. What I have, is it real? If we know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all of us likely to feel the sting in that question. There's a sense throughout the Christian life, and it's true, it's founded in truth, that God has put more into us than we are giving back to him. And this sense of disproportion between his initiation and our response, it can produce gratitude. And through gratitude, the virtues of faith, hope, love. Or it can produce a sense of wrongdoing, a feeling that we fall short, and a fear of what God might have to say to us on both counts. And this can lead us to feel a bit defensive about our faltering discipleship. So what do we do? Have, have you ever been here? We, we make up excuses. We become theologians. We say things like, well, if faith is the gift of God, 
which is what the New Testament says. If faith is the gift of God, and if I have a shrimpy faith, then surely my shrimpy faith is God's fault because he gave it to me. You ever caught yourself reasoning in that way? Do you see the logic? We take our meager faith as a sign that God, who gives us faith as a gift, is a stingy God who withholds what we need in order to enjoy a rewarding Christian life. We are decked and ready for the depths, you see. The problem is that God has only given us a bathtub to work with. We've shown up, don't you know? It's God who's failed to uphold his side of the deal. But according to Jesus, that is a lie. I'd love for you to look with me at our gospel reading from Luke chapter 8. Uh, I don't know the page in your pew Bibles, but if you'd like to pull it up in the pew Bible or in the seat Bible or on your phone, look with me at Luke chapter 8, verses 4 to 15. It'll help to be able to follow along. Here we find one of Jesus' best known parables. It's the parable of the sower. It is a deceptively simple story. It is also one of Jesus' theologically densest teachings. And since it's so brief, it'd be well worth rereading together now. So have a look, Luke chapter 8. I'm going to pick up reading at verse 5. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, look, if ever we are tempted in our little faith to accuse God of stinginess, Jesus says otherwise, because just the opposite picture of God is on display in this parable. God, says Jesus, is not a stingy God. He's a lavish God, distinguished by his generosity. And if we were at all confused on that point, Jesus sorts us out. We just read verses 5 to 8. But Jesus goes on in verses 9 to 15 to explain to his disciples what's going on here. I always like getting to preach on Jesus preaching about what he's already said. It makes the job a lot easier. Well, when we get to verses 9 to 15, did you notice what Jesus says? Is God miserly? Is he stingy? Is he in the dock for withholding from us? No. God is lavishly generous. Indeed, wastefully so. He sows even where no sign of life would be expected to sprout up. In the brambles, on the stone pathways, on thorns, thistles, terraces, and soil, deep and shallow alike. Now, as the sower is going out, spreading his seed, into the fields. Don't imagine a massive 20-acre plot on a 455-acre industrial farm, okay? In first century Palestine, field and trail and home, they intersect, they abut one another and interweave. So a farmer's field, if you're a farmer, your field might lie miles away across paths and trails adjacent to, even interweaving into terraced homes, 
So this land, it's not a Midwestern cornfield engineered for maximum efficiency. It's just land. Okay, and therefore, there are going to be many places in it where seed will be unlikely to take root and flourish. So the sower, you see, he's not sparing with his seed. No, he scatters lavishly. That's the first thing I want you to notice, the generosity of the sower. Notice, secondly, what it is that the sower sows so lavishly. You'll see it in verse 11. The sower sows the word. If this is a parable about the generosity of God, it is no less a parable about the word of God. The testimony about Jesus Christ through the apostles and prophets conveyed to us in Holy Scripture. And did you notice that the first three of the four soils in our parable, they are alike in one respect. Each is inhospitable to the word of God, the Bible. Now we're going to talk about those soils in a moment, but for now, just notice that it is the word of God, its acceptance or its rejection, which lay at the heart of Jesus' teaching. And here again, there can be no charge of stinginess against God. He sows generously, and what he sows is his living and powerful word. God's word is living. As the author of Hebrews says, God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. His word is living and God's word is powerful. As St. James says, apparently hearkening back to this parable, this seed is the implanted word, which is able, powerful to save your souls. So God's word is living and God's word is powerful and God's word is sown generously by God. Conclusion, what do you think? We must conclude, mustn't we, that if you and I are parading around in scuba kit, living an unchallenging and unrewarding Christian life of draining bathtubs, well, the fault cannot be in the sower, in God, because he is infinitely generous, remember. Neither can the fault rest in the seed, his word, for it is living and powerful and able to save your souls. What then? Well, the fault can only remain in the soil. So let's spend the remainder of our time taking soil samples, shall we? Notice that our parable shows us four things that can happen to the word which God sows in us through its hearing, reading, and preaching. According to Jesus, in each one of us this morning, as we hear God's word read and preached in the Bible, we can be sure that when we leave this room, one of these four scenarios will come about. So let's deal with the possibilities as Jesus presents them. First possibility, the word may be devoured by the devil. That is what Jesus says in verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. 
Now, a, a recent song, I'm not going to tell you what it is, a recent song has gained some notoriety for styling itself as a kind of hellish Moulin Rouge. It's a seedy anthem celebrating our right to identify how we want, to do what we want, with whom we want, in whatever way we want, and it plays up its sexual hedonism using imagery of the demonic. Utterly cliché been around since Boy George and Madonna. It's just amping it up a little bit. But such cliches tempt us to look for Satan in cartoonish ways. Do you see what I mean? As if he were always going around choreographing a cabaret of Aslan's slaughter at the stone table. And some people, no doubt, thinking that the whole idea of the devil can only be conceived in such ridiculous and cartoonish terms, they dismiss the idea of the devil as this unbelievable, outmoded holdover from a more gullible age. But let's be clear, Jesus here teaches the existence of a personal agent who is alive and well and who is working to destroy every man, woman, and child, and he is the one whom the Bible calls Satan. What's more, Jesus tells us that Satan has a priority. And it is not to open and close your windows at night. It is not to make you crawl in the corner like a spider. It is not to make your head spin around 50 times. Satan's priority, his aim above all aims, is to pluck up the implanted word in you. Lest it take root and bear fruit. And if that's so, and I take it that Jesus knows what he's talking about, then the devil is nowhere more active to ruin and destroy you than he is at this moment in this room. Because nothing tempts him to maim and kill and destroy like a room full of people gathered together to hear the gospel. So let me ask you a question. What are you thinking about right now? Of all that distracts you during worship, he is the master. He is happy for you to ignore him and to disbelieve his existence as long as you keep daydreaming about your lunch plans. He doesn't need to lure you into a demonic cabaret. He is far more practical than that. He just needs to set you thinking about your next snack. Well, this is the first possibility for the word, that the devil wriggling in through our wanderings of mind and coldness of heart will devour it. Satan wants above all else to destroy your trust in Christ and making the testimony of scripture to Christ seem dull, making the preaching of the words seem boring and irrelevant to you. It is the best and most successful way he knows to maim and destroy you. That's the first possibility. Here's the second. The word may be withered through the flesh. And by flesh, let's just define terms. I don't mean our physical bodies, which are good and given to us by God. I mean our fallen human nature. That principle in us that resists God, that wants to be done with him, or at least to keep him at arm's length. So verse 13, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root 
They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Now, as I mentioned, in ancient Palestine, people often lived in terraced houses, right? With stone walkways where seed might fall or get blown. So not unlike my back patio where some seed, uh, some soil might get blown or dragged by the kids, deposited by the kids, or, uh, or tramped by my dog. And there being no shortage of rain, it's not uncommon to look out when I've not been particularly diligent, which I'll be honest is most of the time, and to see weeds popping up on the patio. We had a giant water oak limb fall and crack our sidewalk. And I just noticed yesterday as I was walking inside that where, uh, where the soil is kind of leached into that crack, there's grass that's starting to grow on the rock. Well, the same thing happened in the ancient world, right? Seed might fall on the rock and sprout in the shallow depth of soil, but having no root in time, perhaps when the next storm comes, it's bound to fall away. Gina and I were walking a couple of weeks ago to pick up our kids from their elementary school. And I don't know if this is how it is where you live, but do you know how uh, for, the, for, for most of us, for every 20 houses that have that brown grass, that withered winter lawn, there's that one yard of vibrant, beautiful, bright green grass. It's the overachiever in your, are you that person? Stop that. You're making the rest of us feel bad. Well, we walked past one of these houses, right? And I, and I thought to myself, well, sure it's green, but it really needs to be edged, you know? <laughs> You gotta, you gotta criticize what you can, right? Well so, well, so much grass was growing. It was such a beautiful, vibrant green uh, uh, lawn that the, that the grass had started growing out on the pavement. You know how it does. And I thought of our parable. Soon the owner of that house will take his or her edger along the property line and cut off whatever grass has grown out over the pavement. And when it does, the grass that's rooted will stay rooted and the grass on the rock will get swept away and taken to the rubbish heap because it has no root. It lives on the margin of good soil, adjacent to good soil, but it is not rooted in itself. And the flesh is just such rocky soil. It admits of no depth for the seed to take root. And it's often found on the margins of good soil. What does that mean? Well, it means that it may attend church. It may have a small group. It may have Christian friends and so on. It may border on good soil, but it has no root in itself. Why? Well, because our flesh our desire to keep God at the margins of life remains fundamentally unchallenged and unmoved. Our desire to keep God on the margins of life, perhaps by leaving him a mere Sunday routine who has nothing to do with the other six days of our week, that is a sign of the stony heart which God offers to replace in the prophets with the heart of flesh. And in the prophets, that biblical phrase, it doesn't, doesn't mean flesh the way I'm using it here. It means a soft and supple heart 
impenetrable to the word. So it may be devoured by the word. It may wither in the flesh. Here's a third possibility. The word may be choked by the world. Verse 14, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. Now, again, let me define terms. By world, I don't mean our non-believing neighbors, our friends, our family, these people that we love. And I don't mean this beautiful creation that God made and declared good. I mean the world in the sense that St. John uses that word, the world in its self-destructive opposition to Jesus. It's revealing that Jesus does not see the world as stealing the word away. Did you notice that? That is what Satan does. The work of the world is far subtler. It is to crowd out the word. My first ministry post was as a middle school pastor. I absolutely loved it. And I've watched those kids go into high school, graduate high school, graduate college, and now they're beginning to get married. And I've known many students and their families who fear that when a student graduates high school and leaves for college, the worldly university is going to steal their faith. Maybe it'll be an atheist philosophy professor. Maybe it'll be a campus culture that sneers at Christians. Well, the truth is that far more often than not, a student's faith is not seized from them. It is choked out by other things. A week of late nights spent studying, followed by volleyball, then the party, then pickleball, then IHOP, rinse and repeat. Until one day the student wakes up and she can't remember the last time that she opened her Bible or read a psalm or, or even attended worship. Now the philosophy professor may want to destroy our girl's faith, but she's not gonna fall away because of the philosophy professor. There may really be a campus culture that sneers her down as a Christian, but she's not going to fall away because of the campus culture. She'll fall away because she has crowded out the word. Well, how about you? Have the late nights from those college years spent studying, have they turned into late nights working? Have the unpunctuated engagements and diversions of college life become the unpunctuated entertainments and diversions of your adult life? When's the last time you read a psalm? Have you choked out the word? Notice that all three soils, they're analogous to those who hear, and yet despite hearing, they don't really hear. They refuse to hear. Which leads us lastly to the good soil. Verse 15. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. To whom may we liken the good soil? Will it be the man who fidgets and daydreams during the reading of the oracles of God? No, don't think so. Will it be the woman who stays on the margin of faith, relying secondhand on the roots of others? 
No, sadly not. Will it be the one who does not reject the word overtly, but crowds it out, refusing to give it space to thrive and flourish? No, again. Who then is to be compared to the good soil? According to Jesus, it is the one who endures in fruitfulness. A phrase in the Greek struck me as I was preparing for this sermon. It is the phrase translated here, honest and good heart. It can be rendered a noble and good heart. The phrase is kalokagathos, or a variation of that in the Greek. And you see that phrase, it's got a long history in the Greek philosophical tradition. So my ears pricked up when I noticed it. In Greek literature, it described a person who was teachable, who was not driven by bodily impulses, and who was noble through virtue. Now we know that Greek, uh, that Luke, excuse me, was a Gentile, a non-Jewish believer. So struck me particularly that he uses this term because he's the only gospel writer to do so. Go back and read the parable of the sower in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel. It doesn't appear there in their versions. So what is gospel writer Luke up to? Well, there's a famous story in the first century Jewish world recorded in a book known as 4th Maccabees. It's roughly contemporaneous, written around the same time as Luke's gospel. It elaborates the story of a scribe called Eliezer, a mother and her seven Jewish sons, all of whom are brutally tortured and executed under the tyrant king Antiochus IV Epiphanes. In the beginning of that book, 4th Maccabees, the mother and her sons are said to have died for the sake of nobility and goodness. The same pairing that Luke uses here in verse 15. So that even their torturers marveled at their courage and endurance, and they became the cause of the downfall of tyranny over their nation. By their endurance, these Jewish martyrs conquered the tyrant, and thus their native land was purified through them. So you see, the Jewish author of that work, 2nd and 4th Maccabees, it, He takes the same qualities that Jesus is talking about here in Luke's gospel. He identifies them at work in the endurance of the saints, of these Jewish saints under persecution. And Jesus does likewise with one significant difference. In the great martyr tales of the ancient Jewish world, endurance plays out under the vicious violence of tyrannical rulers. And it did for Jesus as well. That is the story of the cross. The difference is that for Jesus, endurance plays out not just at the end of life in a grisly martyrdom, but in the everyday trial where the world and the flesh and the devil conspire to make us betray our trust in him. That is why Jesus says a chapter after this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, well before his own crucifixion, that endurance, Christian endurance, is the courage to take up one's cross daily. The good soil, beloved, it is the heart that embraces daily the little martyrdoms of crucifying our desires, 
our self-interests, our ambitions, even our achievements, whatever would threaten the implanted word from taking root and maturing in gospel fruitfulness. Well, where does that leave us? Just three things for you to consider. First, a reminder. Christian growth never proceeds without impediments. If you're not conscious, well, if you are conscious of them, if you're feeling like, ugh, you can have your boot back. If you're feeling like that, good. You're, you're, you're aware of the impediments. If you're not conscious of them, I promise you it's not because they aren't there. It may be that they are impeding your Christian growth more than you think. This Wednesday, we begin the season of Lent, this 40-day season of preparation for Easter. My question for you this morning, one of my questions, is how might the Holy Spirit be inviting you into a season in which you can reimmerse yourself in God's word written and preached? A season of, of moving from the margins of our church family. So I'm not trying to point at you people on the, on the sides. From the margins of our church family. Closer to the center. A season in which you might cut away the habits and patterns of ceaseless diversion that are stunting your growth in God's word. Second thing for you to consider, an encouragement. Disciples are not made overnight. So go on taking up your cross daily. Small growth, little growth, day by day. That is good growth. That is gospel growth. The old Anglican prayer book, it's got a powerful prayer for this morning. It's a prayer that reminds us that a growing Christian life requires more than spiritual disciplines, right? The stuff that we're getting ready for over Lent, as vital as those things are. A growing Christian life requires to use the old word, charity, divine love. That thing that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. Without charity, without divine love, spiritual disciplines, Lenten disciplines, they are not honoring to Christ, they are rebellion against him. The old prayer puts it this way. O Lord, who has taught us that all our doings without charity are nothing worth, Send thy Holy Ghost and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of charity, the very bond of peace and of all virtues, without which whosoever liveth is counted dead before thee. Grant this for thine only Son, Jesus Christ's sake. So friends, as you prepare for Lent, if this is something that you are preparing to observe, then do so advisedly. And do not dare to undertake this season without the help of the Holy Spirit. For just this reason, I, I want to echo Randy's invitation to join us on March 3rd and 4th for the Revive Conference, our, our, our annual conference on the Holy Spirit. This, the, the Holy Spirit, you see, he's not an optional additive to an otherwise peachy Christian life. He is the difference between a life that honors Christ and a life that is counted dead before him. Revive, March 3rd and 4th, please, please do consider coming. Now, finally, a promise. Be assured that the living and powerful word of God will bear fruit. That is the power of God through his word 
and spirit. For every one of us who by the grace of the spirit endures world, flesh, and devil daily, God will bring forth fruit. That is the promise of Jesus. That is the power of his word. That is the work of his spirit. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But as St. James reminds us, be doers of the word and not hearers only.